Well, let's just get straight into God's Word today. And we're going to be looking at Hebrews chapter 6. And we're going to be reading from verses 4 through to verse 12. So, two weeks ago, we looked at chapter 5 through to this particular passage was included in what we looked at. Um, but we really focused on uh, just the first part of that passage. And so today, I want to have a look more at the last part of that passage. So let's just read it. We're going to look at Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 to 12. This is what we read there. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints, as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So this passage is a part of a place in the book of Hebrews where the writer breaks off the discourse that he was giving on Jesus as our high priest. He interrupts it with this portion of scripture where he gives a, a, a rebuke to those that he was writing to and a rebuke for the fact that they were not maturing, that they were not advancing, they were not growing. And then he gives them an exhortation to move on in their Christian life to maturity. And then in this part that we've just read, he warns against apostasy. And so this is what we're going to be looking at today. This passage has been one of uh, controversy in the church. Many people have discussed and debated over what this actually means and how it applies. And so today what we want to do is we want to ask four questions pertaining to this passage. The first one and if you could just put those up, great, thank you. Who are the people described here? We're going to answer that question. What is their spiritual condition? Why is it impossible to restore them again to repentance? And then lastly, why is this warning given? So those are the four questions that we're going to ask and look at and answer today. So let's start with the first one. Who are the people described here in this passage? Well, the writer describes them in detail, and this is what he says about them. Number one, he says, they have once been enlightened. Enlightened about what? Enlightened about Christ, enlightened about the gospel. 
So he's not talking here about people who do not know the gospel. These people that he's referring to here have heard the gospel. It has been explained to them. And if you were to ask them, they could narrate it to you. They could expound the gospel to you. They could tell you the gospel. They have been enlightened. Secondly, he says that they have tasted the heavenly gift. Well, what is the heavenly gift? The heavenly gift, I believe, is Christ. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, so that whoever believes in Him would not perish but have eternal life. Jesus is the bread of heaven that comes down from God. He is the heavenly gift that God has given to us, to mankind, to people. And so it says here they have tasted the heavenly gift. They have tasted the Lord's goodness. So they've had an encounter of some kind with the Lord Jesus Christ. They've experienced something of who He is and what He is like. So that's the second thing that we see here. The third thing, He says they have shared in the Holy Spirit. So what does that mean? Well, it means that they have experienced and known firsthand the Holy Spirit's work. We could probably say this. They have been exposed to His presence in the congregation of the saints. They have experienced the working of the Holy Spirit, whether it's in their life to some degree or in the lives of people that they've known, that they've been around. They are familiar with, and even as he says here, they have shared and they have partaken in the Holy Spirit. Fourthly, he says they have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come. So in other words, we could say this, they have had the Word of God explained to them. They've seen how marvelously the Lord has put His Word together. They've been instructed out of its treasures. They've benefited from its wisdom. So we're talking here about people that are not um, ignorant of God's Word. They're not novices in God's Word, but they have tasted its goodness. Possibly they have even experienced... The grace of spiritual gifts. Maybe they've prophesied in the name of the Lord. Maybe they've been involved in casting out demons. Maybe they've even prayed for other people and seen them get healed. So they have experienced, it says they have tasted the powers of the age to come. And then we can also see from what the writer says here, that they were at one time repentant. He says it's impossible to restore, you see that word restore, them again to repentance. So at one time, one point in their life, they were repentant. But then he says that they have fallen away. So when we look at this particular uh, description of these people, I think we can clearly see that these are people that at one time would have been considered to be Christians. Members of the church, possibly even preachers of the gospel. People who at one time would have called themselves and considered themselves to be Christians, and others would have considered themselves to be followers of Christ. Yet they did not remain that way. They fell away. So what does the writer mean when he says they fell away? What does that mean? Well, let me tell you first of all what it doesn't mean. 
It doesn't mean that they just started to drift or that they were just drifting. It doesn't mean that they've just grown cold or that they have stagnated in their spiritual growth. He's not talking here about people that might be going through a bit of a Romans 7 experience. You know what Romans 7 says? What I want to do, I find myself not doing. And what I don't want to do, I find myself doing. He's not talking about those people that come to that place where they say, Oh, wretched man that I, that I am. He's not talking about that kind of person who's struggling and dealing with issues in their lives. He's not talking about that. What is he talking about? He's talking about people who have turned their back on Christianity completely and probably become antagonistic towards it. They no longer consider themselves or call themselves Christians, although they once did. And they're not just backsliders. They're what we call apostates. They have fully turned their back on the Lord. And sadly, any of us who have been Christians for any extended period of time will know of people just like this, that fit this description exactly. And that shows us that this warning here is not just hypothetical. It is something that actually happens. So we've looked at who these people are. Let's just consider the spiritual condition of these people for a moment. Were they ever really Christians? I mean, we would have considered them to be Christians. They would have called themselves Christians. But were they ever really Christians in the definition that Scripture gives? Did they ever really have saving faith? Were they really born again? Were they truly new creatures in Christ? I wonder how you would answer that. Well, the simple answer is no. And let me tell you why we can answer it that way. They seemed to be Christians, believers, born again for a season. But the outcome of their life shows that they never truly were. These are the kind of people that John, the Apostle John, describes in his first epistle. 1 John chapter 2 verse 19, maybe you can just put that up. Look at what John writes here in this epistle. He says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. So they were among us for a season, but they were actually never a part of us. They are people in the mold of the disciples that we read about in John chapter 6. If you read in John chapter 6, you'll see that there was a time when the Lord Jesus was talking about himself as being the bread of heaven. And I think you might remember this uh, particular situation where he was saying, unless you eat of my flesh and you drink of my blood, you have no life in you. And you remember that he had many disciples there at that time who became offended by what he was saying. And it says there in John 6 that they turned away from him and no longer followed him. They abandoned him. They turned their back on the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the very kind of people that is being described here in this passage in Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 6. Why did those disciples in John 6 turn their back on the Lord? Why did they not accept his words? Why were they offended by what he said? 
When you really think about it, it's simple. They never really truly believed that Jesus was who He is. Although they followed Him and had all the appearance of being devoted disciples to Him, in their hearts they had never really believed that He is the Christ, the Son of God. Because if they had believed that, they would never have turned their back on Him. And if you read in John 6, you'll see that the Lord, after these disciples turn away and, and leave Him and abandon Him, He turns to the twelve and he says to them, do you want to go also? And Peter speaks up for them and he says, Lord, to whom will we go? You're the one that has the words of eternal life. You see, there's someone who has true faith in Jesus Christ. No matter what he said, no matter how difficult that teaching was to, to receive and to accept, and I'm sure it was just as difficult for the disciples as it was for the people that left and abandoned the Lord. They didn't abandon him. Why? Because they saw who he really was. And there's no way that anyone who has seen Jesus for who he really is will ever turn their back on him. It's impossible. Someone who has seen Jesus as the glorified Lord and King of heaven and earth can never turn their back on him. So that shows us that these people that are being described here in Hebrews 6 never really saw Jesus for who he was. They tasted, but they never really saw him for who he was. These are not the people that Romans 8.29 says were foreknown by God. How can we be so sure? Because Paul says right there in that passage, he says, everyone that is foreknown by God will be glorified. It's certain. So we can see that these people were never a part of that group that were foreknown by God. They were never Jesus' sheep. How can I so confidently assert that? Well, let's just have a look at John chapter 10, verse 27 to 28. It's up there on the screen. These are the words of the Lord Jesus. Now look at what he says here. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one can snatch them out of my hand. So what is he saying here? He's saying, my sheep will follow me, they'll never turn away from me, and they will never perish. Do you know that not one of Jesus' sheep is going to perish? The Lord said, I have come down from heaven to do the will of my Father. And this is His will. This is God's will. That everyone that believes in Him and looks to Him, the Son, will not perish, but will have eternal life. And He will raise them up on the last day. Jesus Christ came to do that. That everyone that the Father has given Him would have eternal life. He came to make sure that that happens. And I happen to believe that he's not going to fail in that mission. Not one person that the Father has given to the Lord Jesus is going to perish. If one of them perishes, Jesus has failed. He's failed in his mission. He's not succeeded in what God sent him to do. These people are in some ways just like Judas. Let's just think about Judas for a moment. Judas left all to follow the Lord. 
He was amongst those disciples that left all to follow him. Judas did the Lord's bidding for a season. He preached the gospel for a while. He was one of those that went out and preached the gospel to others, called them to repentance. He cast out demons. He healed the sick. Yet was, was Judas ever really a part of Jesus' people? The other disciples of Christ, they had no idea that Judas was not really one of them. But the Lord did. That very time in John 6 that I've been uh, relating to you, when he said to the twelve, do you want to go also? And Peter said, Lord, to whom, we, whom, to whom are we going to go? You're the one that has the words of eternal life. You know what he said to them? He said, did I not, did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? You see, Jesus knew all along that Judas was not his. He knew all along that Judas was going to betray him. He knew all along that Judas's heart was not really his. But the disciples had no idea. To them, Judas was just as much a part of, the, of their group as any of them. And in fact, when it came to the betrayal, the night of the betrayal, if you remember, they still didn't even know who would be the one that betrayed them when the Lord said, one of you is going to betray me. They had no idea. You see, Judas was amongst them, but they didn't know he was not a part of them. Until when? Until he left them. When he walked out, they now knew that Judas was never really a part of them. But look at what Judas knew. Look at what Judas experienced. Did Judas taste and see the goodness of the Lord? Did Judas taste and see the goodness of the Word of God? Did he taste the powers of the age to come? Was he enlightened? Absolutely. And that's why Judas could never have come back to repentance. And this brings me to the next point. Why can these people never come back to repentance? Why does he say here, it's impossible for them to come back to repentance? It's simply this. The very means that God uses to draw people to repentance, they've turned their back on. They've known it and they've turned their back on. So when you come to people like this and you start trying to restore them again to repentance, what are they going to say? They're going to say, I know all that. I've heard it all. I've experienced it all. And I'm not interested. I've turned my back on it. This also tells us something else. It tells us that if somebody does stray away for a season, but they do come back to the faith, that they are not the people that the writer here in Hebrews is talking about. Because the people that he's talking about here, he says it's impossible for them to be restored again to repentance. No matter what you say, no matter what you try to tell them, no matter how much you try to convince them, they've heard it all. Familiar with it. Tried it all. You see, they, they're people that can narrate the gospel to you. They could preach it to you. They could tell you everything that goes on in the church. They know the songs, they know the jargon, they know the creeds, they can say good sounding prayers. And all of that has left them in that place where they have rejected it. They have rejected it all. They've turned their backs on it. How do we bring them to repentance? What are we going to say that brings them to that place again? 
when they've heard it all. So this is why he says it's impossible for them to come back to repentance. You see, these people are people that have, they've t- it's like people that have taken the ice cream and they've licked it, but never finished it. It's like people that have tasted some food and tried to eat it, but after a while, they just say, I don't like this, and they push it aside. That's really what these people are like. They've tried it, they've tried it all, but for some reason, they just don't like it, and they turn their back on it. So let's go to the fourth question. We've, asked the, we've answered the first three. Let's go to the fourth. Why is this warning given? Why does the writer interrupt his discourse, his teaching, about Jesus being the high priest to bring this kind of message that he was bringing to those that he was writing to? Well, first of all, it was not given to induce a sense of despair in the hearts of the sensitive. That's not what this this warning is given for. It's not given to induce a sense of despair in the hearts of the sensitive. And we can see this by the way the writer moves very quickly through to verse 9, which we're going to read again just in a moment. What did he give it for? He gave it to caution the complacent, professing believer to take stock of where they are. Are they locked in infancy with no interest in maturity? And you can ask these questions of yourself today. Do they expect Christian reality without the reality of a Christian life? Do they call Jesus Lord without obeying what He said? You see, this warning is given to ensure the salvation of God's people. That's what it's given for. To ensure the salvation of God's people. It's given to help us make sure that we are not deceiving ourselves. You know, James said this, Do not deceive yourself by just hearing the Word of God but never doing it. He said if we do that, if we're just hearing God's Word but we're never doing it, we're deceiving ourselves. And you know, there's many people that are in that place of self-deception. Because they can tell you what the Word of God says, because they hear the Word of God and sit under the preaching of the Word of God, they comfort themselves in that. But are they actually doing what they're hearing from the Word of God? That's a question we need to ask of ourselves. This warning was given to make sure that none of us are deceived by the teaching of godless men. And you know that there's so much of that around today. Men that turn the grace of God into licentiousness. And teach that it doesn't matter how we live. As long as we have a profession of faith, our life really matters nothing. That's why this warning was given. So we would escape that kind of teaching which is so rampant in the church today. You see, we need to understand what the New Testament teaches with regards to all this. And I just want to give you three quick things that it teaches. Number one, it teaches us that no professing saint, professing saint, living like a sinner, can draw comfort from the doctrine 
of eternal security. In other words, the assurance of salvation. Let me just say that again. It teaches us that no professing saint living like a sinner can draw comfort from the doctrine of eternal security or the assurance of salvation. Let's just have a look at Matthew 7, 21. This is the Lord Jesus' words. And I happen to believe that if he said this, this is the way it's going to be. He said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, that's the one who's going to enter. So that's the first thing that the New Testament teaches. Secondly, the New Testament teaches us that perseverance in faith, continuing in faith to the very end, is required for salvation. Now, we saw this when we were looking in Hebrews chapter 3, and we're going to see it again as we continue on in this letter, because this is a reoccurring theme in this letter. This persistence in faith is inseparably linked with genuine faith. In other words, what am I saying? Where there is genuine faith, there will be persistence in faith. People that fall away never had a genuine faith. Faith. And I'm sure you sitting here today, can you even see yourself turning away from Christ? I mean, I know people that have been through, literally been through hell on earth, and yet their faith has remained absolutely firm. They have never wavered. They have never for one minute turned their back on the Lord. How could they have gone through what they've gone through? Other people look at what they've gone through and say, it's not fair. That they've gone through what they've gone through. And yet you look at their lives and they have continued steadfast. Do you know that that is evidence of a genuine faith in Christ? I've seen other people where things just maybe, they get slightly offended in the church and they depart the faith. Did they ever really have a genuine faith? Not at all. So this persistence in faith is inseparably linked with genuine faith. Look at John chapter 8, verse 31. Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide, and that word abide means remain, constant, stay. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. What's the evidence that someone is a true disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ? They will remain in his words. Not like those disciples in John 6 that after they heard what they didn't like, they just turned their backs on him and said, I don't like what I'm hearing today. Do you know that the churches around the world, particularly in the Western church, are filled with people who are there and they only want to hear what they want to hear. They want their ears to be tickled. And if they're not hearing what they want to hear, they leave. Do they have a genuine faith in Christ? Are they genuine disciples of Christ? There are many things in Scripture that are hard for us to accept, hard for us to receive. But someone who has a genuine faith in Christ will still receive them, even though they may not understand it. Okay? The third thing, it teaches us that some professing Christians, some professing Christians will not persevere in faith till the end of their lives. So those are the three things that the New Testament teaches us. 
And we learn this last one from this very passage. So we need to come to the place where we accept that this warning in this passage is a real warning. This is not some hypothetical warning that is never actually going to take place. The writer is not putting it forward and saying, this, if it did happen, if it was possible to happen, this would be the case. No, he's talking about real life situation here. Let me give you a quote. Individuals who return to sin with enthusiasm and turn away from Christianity forever will not be saved. Even though they may have professed Christ at some point in their lives and been what we consider to be a Christian at some point in their lives. You see, there is a difference between professing Christ and being possessed by Christ. There is a difference between professing Christ and having faith in Christ. We are not kept by God's power in a vacuum. We are kept by God's power through faith. And genuine faith, those who come to Christ with genuine faith, will not live morally careless lives. Striving to live a holy life is in part evidence that salvation is taking place in someone's life. It's evidence of it. Are those who never, and I accentuate that word, I emphasize that word, never bear the fruit of salvation really saved? Consider the analogy here that we see in these verses. Land that is cultivated, that often receives rain from heaven, and yet does not produce a crop, is cursed and close to being burned. That's the, what he says here. So if we take that and we apply it to human lives, what is the seed that is sown into the soil of our hearts? It's the seed of God's word. What is the water that is sent upon us? It's the word of God, the, the ministrations of the Holy Spirit. And what he's saying here is, if a person receives that, and yet never bears the fruit, what will be the outcome of their lives? You see, if our hearing of the Word of God and our experience of the goodness of the Lord and the Holy Spirit is not producing more godliness and Christ-likeness in us, there is something wrong and we're in grave danger. Have we really and truly repented and turned to Christ? Are our hearts really in this thing that we call Christianity? Are we not in danger of apostasy? Now, I'm not saying that we'll be saved because we bear fruit. Because we have the fruit of salvation. What I'm saying is this. The fruit is the evidence of salvation. Where there is no fruit, is there really salvation? The Lord Jesus said this, by their fruit, you will know them. You can know a tree by its fruit. So if the fruit is not there, is that tree really planted into the soil of the gospel and the soil of Jesus Christ? 
It's not the fruit of righteousness that makes us righteous. We bear the fruit of righteousness because we are righteous. Do you, do you see that there? So it's not the fruit that saves us, but the fruit is the evidence of that salvation that has come into our lives through faith. So let me just close by asking you some questions today. And I know that this is a somber message. It's a somber passage. And you know, it's often a passage that we as preachers would skip over. You know, we would just pass this one over because this is, this is serious stuff that we're talking about today. And so that's one of the good reasons why we choose to go through letters methodically. Why? Because it keeps us from the temptation of having to bypass it. We could easily just skip over it. But by doing this, we are forced to face what Scripture actually teaches. So let me close by asking you some questions. Where do we each stand today? And these are questions for you just to ask yourself. Where do we each stand today? Where do I stand? Where do you stand? Do you truly believe that Jesus is the Son of God? Do you truly believe that? Do you truly believe that God raised him from the dead? I mean, do you really believe that? Has that fact impacted your life? Is your faith the kind of faith that is producing fruit? Or is it just something you talk about having? Is Jesus really your Lord? Are you willing to live for him? Are you willing to die for him? Are His words the standard that you have chosen to live your life by? Does your relationship to Him mean more to you than anything else? More to you than money? More to you than fame? Popularity? Pleasure? Is your relationship with Him the be-all and end-all of your life? Is it, does your life revolve around that? Is there evidence of salvation in your life? Can you honestly say today that you're not the same person you used to be? You see, let me just encourage you a bit today. I don't want to leave you just down in the depths. I want to encourage you because this passage also has an encouragement. And you may say, well, I'm not as fruitful as I would like to be. I'm not where I would like to be in my walk with the Lord. You know what I say? Welcome to the club. You see, that's actually good. That's a good place for us to be in. And that's a good sign that you genuinely do have a faith in Jesus Christ. I know for myself, I, I am not where I would like to be. I'm not bearing the fruit that I would like to bear. I want to mature. I want to grow. I want to become more and more like Jesus. And I'm often discouraged and disheartened that when I look at my life, I see things in my life that I do not want, that shouldn't be there. And I see things that should be there that maybe aren't there in the way that they should be. And that's my experience. And I'm sure I could stand here today and say that Ian would say the same thing. And I'm sure every single one of us in this building would say the same thing. The fact that we actually feel that way, to me, is evidence of the fact that we are going in the right direction. 
That's evidence of the working of salvation in our lives. And it's good that we should feel that way. You see, the issue is not the amount of fruit. Hear this. It's not the amount of fruit. But is there any fruit at all? That's the question. Let's just look at John 15 verse 2 as we bring this to a close. Look at what the Lord said there. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit. Notice that. Does not bear fruit. There's not even a tiny little fruit. He takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, even if it's just a small amount, he prunes. Why? So that it may bear more fruit. And this is why this passage has been given to us. It's been given as part of God's pruning process in our lives so that we would become more fruitful. It's been given to ensure ever-increasing fruitfulness in our lives. It's been given to eradicate complacency and to focus us more fully on the most important aspect of our lives, which is our walk with God. And this is why at the end of this passage, we read these words, and I'm just going to read them to you, and then we're going to pray. Verses 9 to 12. This is what the writer ends up saying once he's given this teaching. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. Do you know that God will not overlook anything that you have done in service of his saints? And we often just so thankful and we just rejoice so much in seeing just how many of you are involved in serving in this church in some capacity. Just giving of yourselves to serve God's saints. He says God will never forget that. And so, verse 11, we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end. So that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Don't ever stop doing what you're doing. Don't ever stop serving the Lord. Don't ever back off from the church. Even if you get offended, just deal with it. Stay plugged into the things of God. Don't allow bitterness to grow up in your soul over anything. Stay plugged into the things of God. Stay true to the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, you said that it is sharper than a two-edged sword. You said that it searches our hearts, it searches our minds, it judges the very thoughts and intents of our being. And there is nothing, Lord, that is not laid bare before your eyes. So we thank you for passages like this. We thank you for the truth. Because it's by the truth that we are sanctified and it's by the truth that we are saved. And so, Father, today we thank you 
for every word that we have been contemplating, discussing, studying in this passage. We thank you for giving it to us so that we might remain steadfast to the end, so that we might not be tempted to turn away, to draw away, to fall away, to backslide, to do any of those things. And so I pray for every single person here today, Father, that you would help each and every one of us. You're the God who keeps us. You're our keeper. You're the one who holds us in your hands. And you said that nothing and no one can ever snatch us out of your hands. And Lord, today we just declare our faith in you. And we declare that our hope is in you. And we say what your disciples, your apostles said, to whom will we turn? Because you're the one that has the words of eternal life. So Father, today, Lord, today, we thank you for choosing us, for saving us, for calling us to yourself, for giving us faith, for opening our eyes to know and to see who you are. And we thank you for the incredible hope that we have in our hearts today. The hope of the resurrection of the dead, the glorification of the saints. We thank you for your promises, Lord. And we thank you for your faithfulness, that you are faithful to us. Our hope and our trust is in you, the living God. Amen.